This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is August Baker, and today I'm happy to be able to speak with Dr. Mark Epstein, a psychiatrist in private practice in New York City, and the author of a number of books about the interface of Buddhism and psychotherapy. Uh, He seems to be one of the pioneers of using Buddhism in medicine in the United States. He worked with all the usual suspects that you learn about as an American looking into this issue, Herbert Benson, Ram Dass, Robert Thurman, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Kornfeld, Sharon Salzberg, not to mention the current Dalai Lama, who uh, Dr. Epstein met uh, very early on, and who actually also wrote the introduction to uh, Mark's first book. Today, I'm pleased to talk to uh, Dr. Epstein about his newest book, The Zen of Therapy, Uncovering a Hidden Kindness. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much. And I will say to our listeners that I actually listened to this book. If you're listening to this podcast, you're used to listening, and I listened to this book. You listened to the book? You I did. My I, voice. You heard me reading it. Yes, I'm, yes. It was it was a very good way of doing it. In fact, I listened to it twice, um, and it's a it's a it's a very enjoyable read. You know, as you point out, it, it is always interesting. There are a lot of case examples. You're talking about actual patients and what's going on, and and th- those are always interesting, um, as you point out. Yeah, but it it works well in the car. Um, So um, I just um, to give you an open ended prompt to start, it it seems like for this book, you decided to take a look at your own process and see how how Buddhism has you developed a style and now you want to kind of step back and say, how did Buddhism affect my style? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I developed a style as a therapist. I also developed a style as a writer. Um, so that um, if I can talk for a little bit, I can sort of flesh that out, what you're, what you're bringing up right from the beginning. Um, when I first started writing, 
uh, I didn't really think of myself as a writer. I knew I was a therapist, but then I felt sort of compelled to uh, um, be like a translator in a certain way of Buddhist psychological thought into Western psychodynamic, psychoanalytic language, which is like the language of the mind that uh, we speak in this country, you know. Um, so I set about at the beginning trying to make sense of the concepts like ego and egolessness and emptiness and what do we mean by that on the Buddhist side, what do we mean by that on the uh, psychotherapy side. Um, but uh, when I continued writing, uh, I found that, oh, what enlivened the writing was if I could talk from a personal place about my own experience. And um, the first book I wrote, you mentioned it already, the one the Dalai Lama wrote the introduction for was called Thoughts Without a Thinker. And the, the third part of Thoughts Without a Thinker, I started writing a little bit from a personal perspective, uh, uh, more around being a meditator uh, than being a therapist. But I, I, I thought to myself that if this meditation thing really has affected me in any way, I should be able to describe it. Uh, in some kind of personal terms, so I sort of set set that as my task, and uh, and I think it helped the books. It it made them more personal, you know, and less um, less just exclusively from the mind and about the concepts. So I kept that up through a series of books until this last one, but the um, what I had resisted uh, in my own writing was more. Uh, writing from inside the place of the therapist. You know, I, I, uh, I wrote about being on retreat, uh, on Buddhist retreat, and, you know, trying to be mindful and uh, w wishing for a piece of toast on my retreat, and then, uh, uh, you know, taking the first bite of the toast, and then the toast disappeared, and, you know, like, who ate my toast? You know, I, I had fun with that kind of writing. But um, for this book, I, I decided the, the, the question that people are always asking me is, uh, you know, how do you bring your Buddhist leanings into the actual uh, psychotherapy practice? And I always resisted giving a good answer to that question because I didn't really know mm -hmm. how I was doing it. I just trusted that if, if, it, uh, if it was happening in me, it should be coming through in some way. But Which is um, a Buddhist isn't that kind of a Buddhist way of looking at it? It, it might be kind of a Buddhist. At yeah. its best, it's a Buddhist way of looking at it. At its worst, it's a defensive maneuver to, <laughs> to not answer the question, you know? Um, but I think, I think I really didn't know. I think I really was trusting that, you know, uh, if it, it, I must be, it must be coming through somehow. But, but I decided, um, I had run out of things to write about, but I wanted to, uh, I, I had one day set aside for writing and I didn't quite know what to do with it. So I decided, okay, why don't I look at my own work, you know, because mostly what I'm doing is therapy with people. So I decided to uh, pick out one session a week uh, where something interesting happened. Right. Maybe I was bringing some Buddhist something, or mm -hmm. maybe there was just some kind of clearing or opening, or you know, or not exactly a revelation because I don't think therapy works that way. But, but some little movement, you know. And um, I forced myself to write down the session, which I don't normally do. 
in the aftermath when the patient left, I would scribble down notes. And then in my writing day, I would try to write it up in a sort of literary fashion. And um, I did that for a year. So I had a stack of these sessions, different patients, you know, what the only real through line was myself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I showed the stack to my editor, who I trust. And she said, oh, this could be a book. I think there's something here. But, you know, you're the only through line. So I think what you should do is go through them and write like a reflection or a commentary or, you know, show us more of yourself, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, from behind the curtain of being mm-hmm. the anonymous therapist, mm-hmm. you know. So then COVID happened because I did all this before COVID. It was like the last uh, year of yeah. face-to-face therapy it right. turned out to be. Um, so the first year of COVID, I spent going through the sessions and, and really working with them and writing about what might have been going on inside of me during the time and so on. And, and I enjoyed that process. It, it brought out a kind of personal voice that, um, that uh, was challenging but, uh, but enjoyable. And so, the, so that's the nucleus of the book. Yeah, that's true. And I also, you know, some of the most, I mean, it was all great, but I, when you talk about being personal, I thought um, the description of being in Maine with your family uh, was just really moving. And I also thought that the description of your speech therapist when you were a kid was just, uh-huh. I just captured so much. Um, and it was, and it was very vulnerable and very well, very well taken. Um, well, I'm glad, I'm glad you listened to the, um, to the audiobook because I, I have a funny story about recording. It wasn't this book, but, uh, I wrote a book called going to pieces without falling apart, which was the second book that I ever wrote. And that book I did the audio version of, and it was the first time I ever did the audio version. And uh, the reason I needed a speech therapist when I was young was because I had a stutter or a stammer, which I managed to learn how to deal with. And now no one could know that the tendency is still there. Um, But when I was shut up into the recording studio, which is like a like a telephone booth when you're doing these audio books, I I had to begin. Uh, with the actual words, obviously, and going to pieces without falling apart. The trick that my therapist had uh, taught me was that if I felt myself about to stutter, I could change the word a little bit. So when when someone asked me my name, if I had trouble saying Mark, I would say my name is Mark, and somehow changing it at the last minute, let the words come out. But so when I was recording this book, the very first words were a word that I was, I knew I was going to stutter on, but I couldn't change the first words of the book. <laughs> so I was sitting par- like there was this long silence where I'm in the recording studio. That's great. And finally, the voice of the engineer comes through my headphones and he's like, Dr. Epstein, is everything all right in there? <laughs> And I thought, oh, here I am, like the avatar of meditation and relaxation and stress reduction, and I can't even get the words out of my mouth, you know? Uh, so I was, I was sort of frightened to go in and record this book, but it all it came out okay, I think. No, it came out great. It, it, was, it was very nice, nicely done. Um, I, one of the things I, I tend to want to talk about, the abstract philosophical stuff, but... I wanted to start, um, 
you know, you, you say um, early on that you are uh, spiritual. You, you characterize yourself as spiritual, but not religious. And there's a funny uh, description of a conversation with your mom, with your mom about that, which is really classic. And then um, I, I felt that, um, you know, the way that came through for me, as I thought about the book after having read it, was this sort of playfulness. Um, I'm trying to think of the right word. Serendipity and openness. You know, a patient brings in experiences with Reiki massage or body workers or energy blocks or ayahuasca. And you're conversant in that and happy to talk about it. Yeah. And um, there were two occasions that I thought were just so interesting. When uh, one... You talk with patients about their dreams and one with the patient, Zach, and you use something called the I Ching. Mm -hmm. uh, the I Ching. The I Ching. Ching. Yeah. And the other um, patient who Rick, Ricky says, I don't know, I'm wishing for a miracle. Uh, could you tell our listeners about those two cases? Sure. Well, I'll start with the second one. Okay. Uh, um uh, Ricky, Ricky was a woman who was uh, grieving, and she she had lost her her soulmate, um, and uh, she was genuinely grieving. Except, except I felt like there was some some bit of pretense in in her grieving. It just didn't feel completely true to me. Like like she was exaggerating the grief, but at the same time I couldn't really feel it. So I, so that's an uncomfortable feeling for me as a therapist. And I didn't quite know what to do. I wanted to help her, um, but I but I was a little bit put off, because, you know. Uh, so so I'm just in my head and trying to be with her. And then suddenly she came out with this, you know, like I'm in so much pain and I just need a miracle. I'm like yearning for a miracle. And I was like, oh, a miracle? You want a miracle? Uh, and uh, a patient, another patient of mine who was a follower of uh, a uh, now deceased guru in India who had been Ramdas's guru, but people still go back to the ashram where, where uh, he had been. She had brought me back some... Uh, um, they call it prasad, some, some uh, food that had been blessed by the guru or by the guru's disciple. They're like sugary sweets, basically, that uh, uh, sit on the altar and are blessed, and then they're given back to the devotees, and they have a bit of the guru, a bit of the god energy in it. And she brought me back some from India. It's like when people bring you a little bottle of water from the Ganges or something. And... Um, I, I have a ceramic vase that my, my wife is a, a sculptor known for her innovative use of ceramics, but I have a vase that she made early, early on, you know, when she was probably 20 years old, that has all these pennies in it that I stole from her and I keep in my office. And I put the prasad that, she, that my patient had brought back from India in that vase. So it's there on a shelf in my office. So, so Ricky's like, I need a miracle. Why won't someone give me a miracle? So I went, I'll give you a miracle. Uh, so, I, so I went to the vase and I took out the prasad. It was in like a little plastic envelope. And I uh, came back and stood by her side and I took out these uh, couple of sugar pills that, that had been blessed by the guru. And I said, here, hold out your hand. 
and she she's like what am i going to give you giving her lsd or something you know <laughs> or uh, an antidepressant um but i said no it's just like it's a, i explained what i just explained and she took it gingerly and put it on her tongue and swallowed it and it changed the energy in the room you know so there was this moment of real contact where I, I, I think I just totally surprised her. So it shook her out of whatever, you know, her, her um, it was like her ego was doing the grief, but, it, but, but something was stopping it from coming from deeper, you know. Um, but anyway, we had this moment around the, around, uh, the, the, um, the miracle, around the prasad, and then the session went on and, and, you know, and it was better. But then she left, and she later that night or the next day, she sent me an email that I quoted in the book, right. uh, basically saying, uh, your placebo or whatever it was, you know, <laughs> like you should give that to all of your patients. <laughs> and she misspelled patients as patient, you know, you're yeah, like yeah. being patient. Right. Um, uh, but anyway, it cleared something, and it was just made this nice moment between us. So... So that's not something I usually do. Right. But, the, but the playfulness that I think you were referring to, like part of my job, I always think as a therapist, is to try to make the session um, interesting for people in a way that possibly does shake them out of a fixed narrative that they're telling themselves about who they are or what their problem is or what needs to happen. So if I can get kind of into that in a way that uh, uh, breaks or, that up, yeah, yeah uh, then I feel like I'm doing my job, you know. So, so that was the story with her. With, the, with Zach, um, he was uh, telling me a dream uh, that was very sexual in, in nature. Um, that that um, maybe maybe I won't describe uh, all of the details on the on the podcast. But uh, anyway, one one part of his dream was a, a sort of mechanical sexual situation, like as if he was in a uh, in a porn film or something. Mm. That it wasn't him. It was a, another couple in the corner who were having sex. I think the way he thought you were supposed to have sex or something, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and then he was. Uh, being introduced to uh, a, a beautiful woman who he felt like he had to go down on, right. but he went he went down on her, but he couldn't find there was so much pubic hair in the way that he couldn't find her genitalia, right. and so he was frustrated with her, with himself. I don't know. Woke up from the dream, uh, and he and, and so he was asking for help with the with the dream, and I didn't know what to. I had some ideas, but but uh, what occurred to me was. Um, maybe we should ask the I Ching about the dream. You know, like, have you ever thrown the I Ching? Uh, he didn't know what the I Ching was, but the, the I he had Ching... A little, is, he had a little... He had a little knowledge. He, he, he did Taoist. He was at, like, did Tai Chi. He knew. Right. I thought he would know more what it was than he did. But anyway, I have an old copy of the I Ching in my office, and I took it down, and I showed him how to throw the... You throw uh, three pennies six times, and it gives you a hexagram, and... Uh, the hexagram gives you a, a, like an oracle that tells you uh, in kind of coded language the answer to whatever question you're, you're asking. So uh, uh, we threw it 
uh, together, and the, uh, the oracle, uh, the hexagram that comes up has a title. And the one that came up was called Biting Through. So it was like exactly what his dream was. You know, yeah. it, was, it was about biting through the obstacles that keep you from your true self. Yeah. You know, and so I made a thing with him that his, the performative aspect of sex where, you know, was getting in the way of the the uh, the being aspect you know the doing versus the being was seemed to be what the I Ching was talking about right and that maybe he was in search of the female element the fe- you know as represented by the female genitalia that he couldn't quite find right to and uh, we had a beautiful session you know yeah. um so yeah the the other thing that comes through um is um, your use of um, poetry uh, and also, um, I don't know if you play music in your sessions, but you talk a lot about uh, John Cage. And that was one of the cases where John Cage had used that as a way to um, take his, put in this, you know, scientists would say randomness, but serendipity or um, playfulness into a composition yes well to take his ego out of it that was his that was what he would say that to take his choice uh, uh, out of the composition so that uh, his music could become reflective of the ways of nature you know the I Ching was supposed to be a way of connecting to the natural world and the natural intelligence so Cage I don't know if everyone who uh, is is listening to this knows about John Cage, but but uh, Cage was a very important figure, not just for me, but for the whole history of contemporary art. You know, friends of Rauschenberg and Merce Cunningham, and uh, really affected the course of uh, of modern art by challenging the um, uh, the centrality of the ego. You know, by undercutting. Uh, the 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 artist's ego as the uh, defining uh, um, factor in the work, you know. Uh, but it, but Cage was a beautiful man who uh, his own humor and his own sensitivity uh, managed to sneak through his own process, you know. So uh, I, I really respect that about him. Right. I I think I um and and I was struck by um. You know, you mentioned his his famous piece of uh, four minutes and however many seconds. Thirty-three seconds. Four minutes and thirty-three seconds. Uh, you could tell our listeners about that, but I also wanted to ask you. You didn't. I don't recall you addressing this uh, exactly in the book, but I wanted to to see what your thoughts were on silence in the psychotherapy session and how that might relate. Oh, it totally re- totally relates. I mean, Cage's famous piece is four minutes and 33 seconds of silence, but he performed it in an outdoor amphitheater in Woodstock, New York, an arts and crafts uh, outdoor theater. So uh, the, the performance was the pianist sitting down at the piano, opening the keyboard, that was the first movement, closing the keyboard back up was the second movement and then the crowd you know coughing and rustling and getting up and leaving and being uncomfortable was the was the third movement and all throughout 
it wasn't silent. It was the sounds of the Hudson Valley, the sounds of nature, the wind and the birds and the animals scurrying through and the people. And the people trying to make sense of it. The people trying to make sense of it. The people's minds, you know, like trying to make sense of it, which Cage was, you know, deliberately engaging with. So uh, Cage's big, you know, his big book that he wrote is called Silence. And his big revelation is that there's no such thing as silence, that there's always, he even went into these, uh, uh, whatever they're called, echoic chambers at Harvard, where uh, it's completely silent, but he, even in the chamber, he was hearing his own blood rushing in his body, you know, and his own heartbeat, uh, his own nervous system. So his revelation was that silence doesn't exist, you know, Uh, that there's always. So uh, uh, as a therapist, one of the things that I've uh, had to train myself to do that meditation helped me with is uh, not to jump in right away when a patient first comes into the room, when it's awkward and when, when there's anxiety, because starting, you know, when, when I was a patient in therapy, I always like wished for a dream. So if I had a dream the night before, then I knew I could just start with the dream and then, <laughs> I, then, then I was off the hook, you know. But so as a therapist, to be able to wait for what's behind the presenting words, you know, people often make up something to start the session with or, or else they, they sit uncomfortably. But but the trick with therapy is to be open to uh, whatever arises naturally and to really trust that what comes, even if it seems, uh, you know, ordinary or benign or not that interesting, you know. Or nothing. It seems or to be. nothing. Right. That there's always something. You right. Know? Yeah. And so to be able to go with that, unless a person is really too anxious and then needs my support and then I'll, then I'll jump in, you know. Um, but that being able to wait that extra beat as a therapist allows um, the you, you know potentially allows something unexpected to emerge and and that's always what's interesting in the therapy yeah. and I tried to show that by by making in the book by by just showing how ordinary most of therapy is like we're not really talking about the deep childhood traumas that often. We're more talking about the mother-in-law visiting or the fight with the wife or, you know, difficulty with the stepchildren. Bringing um, home the, the, the avocado toast and, and <laughs> the soup and getting si- sizes wrong. That's and, yeah. my favorite story. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah, that was the, the man who looks uh, very much like the young Antonio Banderas, I believe. Exactly. But exactly. by the way, I thought that one of the very interesting things about your book, I, I haven't seen this before, is that in most books about psychotherapy where you see case studies, you don't, they're a composite or they're, or they're really just the author, you know, like Kohut did that. And two cases of Mr. Z is just him. And um these i thought it was very interesting each one you had the patients read over oh yes and 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 comment on and say you know me i agree with this and by the way i'm think tell you what they were i remember that session and this happened but these are actually they've all been approved by uh, our oh yes yes 
Is that, that something was, you've done before, or I thought no, that was... Well, anytime I've anytime I've used anything from uh, from a real patient, I always let them. I always ask them, is, you know, will you read this over, and is this okay, and can I should I change anything? Yeah. I've all I've always done that, but um, but I've always been very reluctant to mine the sessions because. I didn't like having my my mind in a separate place. Oh, I right. could use this. Right. So so that's when I started using myself um, as a patient. Gotcha. A lot of my earlier books I write about, you know, my speech therapy and being my first therapist, my second therapist, my tr- my troubles with my wife. You know, I decided to use myself as the main patient. But here, as did Freud. I, as did Freud. Yes, I had a good mentor and, uh, <laughs> and a, good, a good example in Freud. But here, where I was using the real patients, with with everyone, I went back and forth. Like, is it you know? Do you remember it this way? Is it okay to say this? This is the name. The main thing that people wanted to discuss was what the pseudonym was, <laughs> because I would. Pay, they were like, "Why did you call me this? That's my middle name. I hate that name." Or that. Or uh, you know, can I be uh, a a um, uh, 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 one one patient uh, wanted uh, thought the name I picked was too femme, and you know right. want, wanted a more gender neutral name, etc. So I'm fine with all of that. But the back and forth was fun, and I tried to include a little bit of that in the narrative of the book. That was nice. So that, and the one you're referring yes. to, my uh, my uh, my patient who. Uh, bears a remarkable resemblance to Antonio Banderas. He, in, in my back and forth with him, as a sort of joke at the end of our correspondence about the actual session, he said, and if you would just say that I bear an uncanny really, uh, resemblance, <laughs> my mother will be so happy. So, so I was like, oh, fine, I'll, I'll do that. So, so I, I, started <laughs> that was, the, that was I started the case out by describing him that way. And then at the end, uh, it was charming, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I had fun with that. Um, yeah, this thing, um, you know, I liked, I had never read the D.H. Lawrence poem, The Snake, that you yeah. you excerpt. And um, there's so much there. We could spend 45 minutes on it or a whole semester on it, right? Um, that was my most fun doing the audiobook was reading that poem out loud. I loved reading that. The words, you know, the words he chooses are just amazing. Incredible. Uh, um, each word you could think, well, how did that word come in there? But <clears throat> to just look at the very ending. And so I missed my chance with one of the lords of life. And I have something to expiate a pettiness. Um, I'll just give you that as a prompt. Um, I. I um you saw it as the whole poem as uh capturing a lot of what mindfulness does and, and what psychotherapy does, I guess. Yeah. yeah, both. I'm glad you I'm glad you're saying both. Yeah, I, I saw the poem. The the poem is about D. H. Lawrence in Sicily going into his backyard, into his garden and seeing uh, seeing a snake uh uh coming up uh the wall. Uh, and his, he's uh, captured by the majesty of the snake, but then uh, uh, also gets afraid of it and, and uh, says that his educated self wants to throw a log or throw a rock at the, at the snake to get rid of it. Uh, and he, he ends up doing that. 
and sees the snake scurrying away and then and then realizes like oh he's like destroyed the moment basically like he was there he was in in uh, able able to be in dialogue with one of the lords of the underworld or something like that so this the snake i i didn't know the poem either one of my patients told me about the poem um and i i saw you know the snake is it's been a symbol forever for everything it, you know from the kundalini to the unconscious um to you know going back to uh, adam and eve so um so i saw it as a metaphor for both for being able to um look at the horror of oneself as one has to do often in uh, uh psychotherapy but but also at all the uh the raw uh sometimes violent uh uh, uh um, aspects of ourselves you, you know uh that we come face to face with in deep meditation you know all the ways that we've hurt people that when you're sitting with your own mind for long periods of time that's what comes that that's what you end up reflecting on you know right. or your deepest fears your your sense of shame your deepest cravings uh your anger your frustration all all that stuff it's you, you can't there's a big tendency in the meditation world to to sort of leapfrog over that and just go go to the uh the uh, hope for the bliss you know that's mm-hmm. been promised to you by uh, all the self-help books but um but that's not necessarily what really happened so uh, uh i'm trying to make that point right and the snake comes up even earlier in the in the buddha story that you did you give it earlier the, and yeah the yeah, snake and, is the, yeah. the snake comes uh mukalinda is the big snake in the uh in the buddha story where uh, the the he comes up behind the buddha and uh, he's like a cobra and puts his hood over the buddha and shields him from uh from the rain and from the sun and so on Right. So. Yeah, that was um, I, I that was the, the best way I could think of it also. Um, and, you know, the I you one of the points you make is that. Um, well, in the when the Dalai Lama wrote the introduction to your uh, first book, when you got it, you write that you were um, took you a while to appreciate it because it said um, things like um, we let's see. He wrote the purpose of life is to be happy. As a Buddhist, I have found that one's own mental attitude is the most influential factor in working toward that goal. In order to change conditions outside ourselves, whether they concern the environment or relations with others. We must first change within ourselves. Inner peace is the key. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was very interesting. You were sort of, um, you know, incredulous. And then you, what clarified it for me was you said that what the Dalai Lama means by inner peace is not what we might think, uh, namely like relaxation or a state of, um, what do you call it? hypo essence, maybe yeah. hypo metabolic right yeah yes. um, the scientific could, the hypo metabolic right yeah. could you talk yeah. about um what what the 
what the Dalai Lama meant by um, inner, what, what, what he means by inner peace? Well, what I came to believe that he meant uh, by inner peace, because I, I was reflecting on it for uh, uh, decades, you know? Right. Um, at first, when I read it, I was like, oh, inner peace, you know, like TM, you know, like uh, the relaxation response, like stress reduction, all that stuff. Like, is that all that meditation is? Even the Dalai Lama, is he saying? But, but then I, I spent a lot of time uh, over the years listening to the Dalai Lama's teachings. And the, the more I listened, the more I realized, oh, yeah, he's talking about nonviolence. Like, like inner nonviolence. He's talking about, you know, de-weaponizing our own minds, you know. He, he's talking about how each one of us has the, this, you know, uh, destructive tendency that we deploy either on ourselves or on the people that we love, you know, and need right. the most, or on, you know, people we perceive as our enemies. But uh, what's that doing for the world, you know? Right. So uh, really dealing with our own aggression, really dealing with our own anger, with our own rage, with our own frustration, you know, how do we really deal with that in a way that de-weaponizes it? Um, and, uh, and there were, yeah, there were a lot of great examples about, of that in the book. Um, you know, I, I, at one point you say, it's not what you were thinking that matters, it's how you relate to your thoughts that will make all the difference. Um, with Zach, if it, you say, if Zach could see his negative thoughts not as a reflection of his inherent inadequacy, but as the understandable misperceptions of where he was, um, he might not feel so much shame. He... Um, Another place you help a patient cultivate an attitude of forgiveness about a, a divorce situation. Um, the whole uh, love thoughts, I think, yeah, is, is it captures that. Another time, if I am successful with Margaret, I will get her to mindfully observe her self hatred rather than remaining a victim of it. There's lots of examples of this. Yep. But that seemed to be one of the the key uh, the key that points. That is the that is definitely one of the key, if not the only key, because <laughs> uh, um, that phrase, it's not what you're thinking that matters, or it's not what you're experiencing that matters. Um, it's how you relate to it. Yeah. That 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 I stole from uh, Joseph Goldstein, one one of my main you know meditation teachers, Buddhist teachers, because. Every time I would go on retreat with him, I would smuggle a little notebook into the retreat with me because you're not supposed to, you know, like write anything or read anything. But, you know, just in case I had a revelation and uh, he would give that teaching in one form or another. And, and every time I would hear it, I would be like, oh, that is really the essence of everything. It's not what's going on in my mind. It's how I relate to it. That's what meditation is giving me. That's what it's teaching me. Like to, to relate from that place of allowance, of forgiveness, of kindness, you know, of generosity, mm. with, with humor, you know, like mm -hmm. uh, all of that. 
So, uh, so I would write down, you know, some version of that. And then every 10 years or so, I would look through this notebook when I was trying to write something. And I would see I had written the same thing over and over again. You know? <laughs> so finally, finally, I'm able to talk about it as if it's mine. Yeah. No, it was really, it, 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 it um, really came through. Um, we um, typically try to make these 45 minutes and I have about a million more things I want to talk to you about. But one thing, um, let's talk about hate in the counter transference, the Winnicott. Mm -hmm. You make the, you make the good point. I'll just mention, you make the good point that Western psychotherapy is really often uses the metaphor of development. That's that something has gone wrong in development and that, that the Buddhist uh, approach doesn't um, necessarily go that way. Um, I thought that was, I, I was, I was happy to, that, that seemed very clear. Um, the other, but let's talk about hate and the counter-transference because um, I guess one of the things the word hate is pretty strong, right? And um, one of the things he says is, you know, the baby can hate the mother, the mother hates the baby. And one of the lines is sentimentality is useless for parents as it contains a denial of hate. Mm -hmm. When I... I thought that was great. But when I mention that to people now, it just culturally, it's like, I don't want to go that far. Mm-hmm. Um, and another line, I'll just give you one. Uh, he says, however much the analyst loves her patients, she cannot avoid hating them and fearing them. And finally, as an analyst, I have ways of expressing hate. You think, well, no, the analyst is nurturing and empathetic. Not how do they show hate? He says, hate is expressed by the existence of the end of the hour. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, I would just like to hear your thoughts on that, um, because I just find there's a lot of reluctance for people to acknowledge hate in themselves. It seems to be a very difficult one. Yeah. You talk about anger at the end of yeah. uh, in your discussion is fascinating. Um, but anyway, what, what are your what comes to mind? <laughs> well, your, the Hate and the Countertransference, that's a very important paper by this, this British child uh, psychiatrist and psychoanalyst named Donald Winnicott, who, like John Cage, I would say John Cage and Winnicott are my two like grandfather figures, you know, because um, I think Winnicott is, is a great Buddhist teacher, although he didn't know that he was a great Buddhist teacher, I don't think, but he knew he was doing something. So... Uh, when I, whenever I'm teaching, like in work in a sort of workshop thing with Robert Thurman or Sharon Salzberg or Joseph or whatever, when I'm teaching to Buddhist audiences, I have found that if I take this paper of Winnicott's Hate and the Countertransference and read them bits of it, you know, that it's magnificent because it's it's making. It's making a an important point, but not one that people necessarily want to hear right. about how central anger and even hate or rage is to our psychic ex- experience. And if we're sentimental about it and pretend, you know, that 
oh no, I'm a meditator and I love everybody, you know, and uh, including myself. Um, right. That, that we're, we're, we're missing what meditation is really good for, what it can really do. So uh, Winnicott and, is talking. And what therapy is really good for. And what therapy, can, exactly. Yeah. So, so uh, Winnicott's equating child rearing, uh, in particular in his time, the 40s and 50s, the mother's relationship with the infant. You know, he's saying, no way does the mother not sometimes hate the baby. You know, the baby, of course, is a, is a, uh, a ball of every emotion that the human is, is capable of. Desire, need, love, anger, rage. He, the ba- his favorite word for the baby is ruthless. Like the baby attacks the mother ruthlessly with no regard for her well-being. Therefore, the mother sometimes feels like, oh my God, get me out of here, or fe- feels sure. hate. Mm-hmm. But because the maternal thing is so strong, the, the mother naturally uh, doesn't give in to her hate. You know, the good enough mother, that's Winnicott's phrase, uh, doesn't abandon and doesn't retaliate. Those are the two poles that Winnicott sets up. The something in the mother, which is her inherent kindness or her maternal aptitude, uh, stays present with the hate of the hate of the baby and her own hate, stays present enough to feed, change, uh, sing, you know, uh, uh, hold the, uh, the baby. So the mother has this natural capacity, and Winnicott was always reinforcing, well, you don't need teaching for this, you don't need science for this, it's there in you already. You know how to hold, you, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh used to say, uh, uh, hold anger like a baby, mm. you know. So, uh, so the mother knows how to hold the, the range of emotions. So, my, Winnicott's point is the therapist is doing something similar, in particular when he or she is repairing uh, uh, early developmental struggles where the, maybe the mother or the father didn't do it so well, did avoid or did retaliate, and so created uh, you know, some kind of reaction in the child that gets carried into adulthood. Um, my point is that something very similar applies in meditation also, that we, one of the things we're learning with mindfulness is how to bring out that maternal aptitude, that ability to stay with a kind of kindness with the entire range of our emotional experience, and that we all have that potential even if we've been hurt, even if we've been traumatized, even if we're sitting on a lot of our own difficult emotions, we can find that, um, that observing self, that maternal self, or now we could even say that paternal right. uh, kind of mind. And uh, so I like, to, I like to use all those examples because they're not, they're not the traditional ones that are used in Buddhism because Buddhism didn't really have a developmental psychology as right. we, you know, the way we right, right. have developed uh, right. post-Freud. Right. Well, it, um, I really enjoyed the book. Um, I'll tell you just lastly, the image of being out in the ocean with Ram Dass was just unforgettable. Um, just goosebumps. I mean, it was really, really something. So um, it was really great talking with you. Um, Dr. Mark Epstein, the book is 
the Zen of therapy. Yep. And it was great talking with you. It was great talking with you too. I'm so glad you you really read the book and oh, yeah. and like and like or listened to the book. Listen, and listened, listened yes. and liked it. So that yes. means so much to me. Thank okay. you very much. Great. Okay, so we're going to say goodbye to our listeners. Bye, listeners. 